Those are good words for sure and it was good to thank our women this morning and uh, for their leadership and for our men also, Rob Bear and his team, so very grateful for that. I want to, even before I begin, I want to make a confession this morning, if I could, of my... Um, I stole my Bible's wife, my, my Bible's wife. That's a powerful brain. It's, when you get your words mixed up, it's because you're smart. Uh, I stole my wife's Bible this week. Were you looking for it this morning? I'm sorry, honey, it's right here. I have, I need a, I put an APB out on my Bible. I can't find it since last Sunday, so I've been using hers all week to study. And she's been like, I need my Bible back. <laughs> so we've had a, did you find my Bible? Oh, you have it memorized. You have the whole Bible memorized. My wife's godly. She has the whole Bible memorized. She doesn't need it. <laughs> anyway, so if you see a Bible similar to this, don't steal it, okay? Bring it, give it to me. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. And if you are new, we've been in Isaiah for a very, very, very long time. Have we not? Good stuff. We're coming to the end of it. Only 60, I think 66 chapters. Is that right? Yep. So we're in that last section. So turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 63 as we continue and talk about big picture, the return. Uh, let me update us a little bit. Here, here's what Isaiah does for us this morning. He startles us in this text with the complexity of who God is. And he does that by first revealing in, in chapter 63, 1 through 6. He reveals to us how I've written it, this triumphant anger of Christ. Now you think about how those words triumphant and anger and Christ don't necessarily go together. And he does so as he shows us the return of the blood-splattered divine warrior who alone will destroy all the external enemies, and internal human evil. He does this also, so that's one picture, but he also gives us this other picture, as Kevin said, of this tender, merciful, long-suffering, patient God who is faithful when we're faithless. So he gives us these two pictures, and it is a reminder, reminder to us that we cannot put God in a box. A careful reading of God's Word will not allow us to put God in some kind of human box. And if we're to be biblical Christians, we really need to learn to live with that tension. Even as humans, we're very complex, are we not? Like, we're not all good or all bad. We, we, we have both of those, and sometimes we're better than others, but we're certainly complex, so certainly God is. And so here's what Isaiah does for us. He enlarges our vision of God, and then at the end, he brings us to this point where we finally embrace all of God through the struggle, and in doing that, it really protects us from worshiping a God that we create in our own mind. And that's a good thing. C.S. Lewis speaks to this complexity of God in his very famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he says, he writes, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Is he quite safe? 
Lucy asked. I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what I'm saying? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so this morning, Isaiah gives us this first glimpse of this very complex God that we serve. Read with me, if you would, 63, 1 through 6. He writes, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Last week in Monty's sermon of 62, verse 11, the word has gone out that Zion, to Zion, that your salvation is coming. And it says that the watchmen were on the lookout. And here we have the watchman who's now Isaiah. And he's not quite sure what he sees coming at him. Therefore he asks the question, who is this? Who is this? And there are two things really in this, these first six verses that catch the attention of the watchman. One is the direction from which this person comes. And secondly, the apparel in which this person is wearing. And so first he says, this warrior, this divine warrior comes from the direction of Edom and Basra. Edom was known as a nation south of Israel. It became known to represent all the enemies of God from around the world, from every nation and every tribe and every race. Edom was that representative name. It, it's, uh, Edom is the land of the descendants of Esau. You remember Esau. He's the elder twin brother of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, who sold out his birthright. He sold his soul for a bowl of soup. That's where they came from. Edom represents, in a way, human beings at their very worst. Those who despise God. Those who find themselves in earthly pleasures. And they persecute God's people who live for another world, not the here and now. That's Edom. And so when Isaiah says this, modern day he would be saying something like, the divine warrior is coming from Iraq and proceeds out of Baghdad. Immediately, the watchman would know, uh-oh, he's coming from the home of our enemies. The warrior's clothing, he says, is splendid in appearance. Bright, sharp colors. 
gives us this sign that royalty is dressed like this. Folks didn't have colored clothes in those days. It says majestic in appearance, all inspiring. The picture is that of Isaiah 6 where it says in the train of his robe, this person coming filled the whole temple. It says he marches with a swagger. There's a physical presence of strength about him. And now this divine warrior answers the question, who is this? At the end of verse 1, he says, it is I, speaking righteousness, mighty to save. This self-identification of God is a big deal. He's just not saying, oh, it's me. No, Anytime you see the self-identification of God, i.e. Exodus 3, Moses sees God face to face and God reveals who he is to him, what does he say? I am who I am. Every time you see that self-identification of God, what's happening in that text is profound. It, it, it puts fireworks under and it says, pay attention, this is a big deal. God is disclosing here in this divine warrior who he is. This is Jesus Christ. This is exactly how God discloses himself to us today through the person of Jesus Christ. He says he speaks in righteousness. He says mighty to say. Very bluntly he says those words. And no wonder he says it bluntly because the blood on this divine warrior is not his own blood from his first coming and shedding his blood at the cross, but the blood on him is the blood from his enemies that he has destroyed. The enemies of God must be defeated if the people of God are to experience God's presence. Both the external enemies, like the Edomites and other nations around the world, who persecute God and his people. But also the internal enemy of sin that stakes itself out in every heart of every human. He will get rid of that when he comes back the second time. Verse 3. Notice, he says, I didn't have any help. <laughs> I did it all alone. Scripture tells us there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He walked on and trampled his enemies. Victory through complete destruction. This divine warrior wears another hat and is the divine judge. And he is saying, I destroyed them because of my anger over their sin, their evil and rebellion. It is the holy, if you can put this complexity together, the holy wrath of God poured out on the enemies of God. Here's how one writer put it. He said, God is a father whose children have been abused and mutilated. He is a king whose subjects have revolted and tried to usurp his throne. He is a creator whose creations have perverted themselves into the very opposite of the things for which they were created. And for that, God poured out his wrath on his son. And in the second coming, he will pour out his wrath on all his enemies, including the indwelling sin of his people. The one thing will happen at the second coming is there will be no more sin and no more tears and no more struggle and no more pain and no more temptation. 
This is Father God who's saying, I've got your back. I remember, Joelle's going to laugh at this. She hates it now, but she used to love it. When she was little, I would say, let me tell you a story. And she would say, yes. And I would say, once upon a time, there was a dad and his little girl. And every story would change. But ultimately, we were walking somewhere, whether it be a massive dinosaur or mean old people or gigantic dogs or bears or lions or robots or monsters. They would come and attack this little girl. And I was the hero of every story I told. Because <laughs> I tore them up. I was the warrior and they were splattered with my, with their own, I was splattered with their blood because I destroyed them and I protected her and I saved her. I had her back. That's what God is saying here in this passage. This kind of imagery, this, this plain spoken, vicious, violent imagery about who God is, is meant to capture our emotions and to move us internally in our hearts. So that we wouldn't know God just intellectually, but we would feel the truth of who he is and it would move us to this healthy fear and awe of this great warrior who will return to redeem his people for all eternity. I love verse 4. It says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart. This day where I returned to make all things right was in my heart. I am passionate and I am full of desire to come back and do what I said I would do. Apostle John in Revelation 19 was given a similar vision of Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. He says, Then I saw heaven and and, open, and then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, parentheses, tomorrow in the eclipse, if you see a white horse coming out from behind the sun, it's on, okay? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. You wouldn't need no glasses in. Take them off. <laughs> Raise your hands. The one sitting on this horse called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. And then earlier in Revelation 6, John calls this divine warrior the wrath of the Lamb. He's complex. He's both a lion and a lamb. Let me make clear to us this morning this point. If the lion slash lamb is angry with you, it is because you deserve it. I deserve it. 
And we would deserve it only for one reason, because we have rejected the shedding of his own blood to forgive our sins and there's still an enemy of his. And if he returns, our blood will be splattered on his robe at his second coming. If he's not angry with you, it is not because you're good. It is only because of one reason. You have trusted in the finished work of his first coming. You have trusted in the shed blood of his work on the cross. And scripture, Paul writes in Ephesians, that we were no longer his enemies. We have become his friends. Huh. And here's what that means. That means that if you know Christ, you will never, ever experience the wrath of God. Just let that sit with you. If you know Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God. <clears throat> God poured out his wrath the first time on the back of his son. On the second time, he will pour it out to his enemies. And their blood will splatter his robe, not his own. We see in these first six verses, the awfulness of human sin, our sin, has stirred up, in a sense, this holy wrath. Isaiah and his people sort of see this clearly. They are reminding afresh and clear of this vision of God and who he is and how he'll ultimately deal with his enemies and how he'll ultimately deal with the struggle of sin in his people. He will wipe it out. And this vision of return of this divine warrior on behalf of the people, makes Isaiah go into one of the longest and most eloquent prayers and intercessions for the people of God in the whole Bible. That's a good response when we see a clear vision of who God is, is it not? And so, really, what happens here in these rest of these verses is that, is that Isaiah, we get to learn how to pray. Think of Psalm 73. That's what you're going to hear here. These lament psalms where there is this gut-wrenching biblical prayer because they see clearly who God is and what he does. So the first, as the people of God return to God through prayer, the first is a prayer of intentional remembrance. Look at 63, 7 through 14. Isaiah in his prayer says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Excuse me, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled. And they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. 
Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea, the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. So what does Isaiah do? He intercedes on behalf of his people. And in verse 7, he says, we will remember. We will recount. We will recall. We will bring to mind the steadfast Hesed. Covenant love, can't break kind of love, never failing love of the Lord because all he has done for us and for his pure, sheer goodness to us, his great compassion to us. And again, the verse wraps up with this steadfast, hesed, never failing love of God. This love of God, this covenant love of God to a people who have gone whoring after other gods time after time after time after time. And God did, just, did not just not tolerate them, but Isaiah is reminding himself and the people that he loved them perfectly. And he acted with goodness and compassion to them every time. It is a point to be made that God has been so much better to them and so much better to us than we've ever deserved. This kind of praying stirs up grace-felt gratitude in our hearts. I know I do and I know you do. We suffer from spiritual amnesia. Therefore, remembering the past mercies of God is like a booster shot of faith to believe God for his future mercies. Always has been, always will be. Our look back will make a difference in how we walk in the here and now and in the future. And then in verses 8 and 9, Isaiah is reminding them of how the Lord's love began with them. You know, back in the day, God did not have a people. And so what he did, he looked out upon all the peoples of the earth and he saw this very special group of people that were more godly and more kind and more like him than any other people. And he said, you know what? I'm going to make them first round draft picks. I'm going to bring them in. They're the A-team. Some of you are going, really? <laughs> no. Scripture tells us big picture, God elected the people of Israel just because. They were ungodly. There was nothing special about them. They were going their own way. And he chose them. When they were not a people, he made them a people just because. And for those of us who are saved, he did the same with us. See, the therapeutic gospel says this. I am valuable and that's why God loves me. That's dangerous. The biblical gospel says I'm valuable because God loves me. 
There's a big difference here. And the expectations of these people that he chose out of the blue to become his people would be, as it says in the text, that his grace toward them would make them not deal falsely with God and others. But we know they did, and we know we do. And here's what God continues to do in that text. He tells us, even though we do deal falsely, God continues to declare to us this positional truth of what we could be, would be, and should be because of his grace to us. That's why in the scripture he calls us beloved. <laughs> That's why he calls us his sons and daughters. That's why he positionally comes after us, friends, enemies to friends. And then it says that he entered into our affliction through the incarnation. He's with us. Isaiah is saying he's not distant. He's not hands off. He didn't wind us up like a clock and say, good luck. And it says he redeemed them and carried them. A picture of God being the good shepherd. The mother eagle. One whose caring knows no limits. Isaiah is reminding us that we as people were created to be carried and dependent all the days of our life. And that God here says I never get tired of doing it. <laughs> I do not sleep. I do not slumber. I do not have a bad back. I do not take ibuprofen. As we have warned many times from this pulpit and in personal counseling sessions in my office, and I, as I have been warned many times, spiritual autonomy and self-sufficiency always ends tragically. We must get the difference. Physical maturity leads to independence. My oldest son, Josh, and my second oldest son, Jess, they have grown up physically. I no longer pay their bills. You get that. They're saving now to pay my bills later. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> They're independent. They got their own house, their own car payments. That's the way it works. But spiritual maturity always leads to more dependence. You think you're spiritually mature? The first place you need to look is how dependent am I? How much do I know in the depths of my heart that I need to be carried <laughs> by God and his people? Verse 10 is just tragic. But in spite of this, they rebelled. <laughs> they grieved the Holy Spirit. The word is hurt. It says God's not impersonal. He's not a robot. A force can't be grieved. Only a person can be grieved. He loves us deeply and he feels our rebellion as a parent feels the rebellion of a child. And if you live long enough and have enough children, you will feel the hurt of a rebellious child. Verse 11 says... 
twice the question is asked, where is he? You may want to just write that down. It's one of the greatest big life questions there is. Where is God? Where is he? If we could just stop everything and we figure out where he is. Here's what I find. When I am meeting with people whose lives are in chaos and they're going antithetical to the ways of God and they're supposed to be a believer, my question many times is, where's Jesus in all this? You know what the answer is? Oh. And if we don't know where he is, if we can't connect the dots, then we're in real trouble. I come back to Luke 15 a lot because it's one of my favorite passages. The prodigal son. Luke 15 tells us where God is. He tells us that God is waiting at the end of the road for us as people, his sons and daughters to awake and come to their senses and return to him. The one whose love is steadfast, immovable, sees us, runs to us, embraces us, kisses us, and throws a party. One writer summed this section up with this quote. One truly remembers what God has said and done only when they live a life in accordance with what God has said and done. Not to do so is to have forgotten God regardless of what one may say. Isaiah says the first thing we do in prayer is we look back. And we remember very intentionally the goodness, the sheer goodness and mercy of God, even though we have rebelled. That's a great way to pray. Secondly, he gives us this prayer of honest complaint. Honest complaint. <laughs> it, gets, it gets ruthless here. If you don't like truth, you won't like this next section. Because <laughs> he pours it out. He says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts speaking to God and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Uh-oh. And, O Lord, why do you harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. <clears throat> Isaiah prays this because God seems very far away. He seems as if he is asleep, uncaring. He's demanding in some way that God take notice of them. He is saying, you, the first verse there in 15, you're up in heaven and you're in a beautiful place and all secure. And here we are. We're a mess. We have suffered in captivity. We've come back home to Jerusalem. It's a wreck. So where is your zeal and deeds, he asks. Where is your commitment to keep your promises? There's no doubt here that Isaiah is looking back to what Israel used to be. And he's saying, God, 
Those were the good old days. <laughs> Where are you? We're in trouble here. He says, the stirring of your heart is restrained. You once used to love us, and now you seem emotionally shut off from, a, emotionally shut off from us. One writer said, this is the language of the dark night of the soul. And if you've been a Christ follower long enough, you've felt that. <laughs> Life gets hard. Your sin gets big. And you said, oh Lord, where are you? God doesn't love me. No one loves me. Going out door to eat worms. Right? Here's what's encouraging about this honest complaint, heartfelt prayer. This is coming from Isaiah, folks. This is the man who in Isaiah 6 sat in the very presence of God. <laughs> and he has come to this place, him and his people, where he says, Oh Lord, where are you? Verse 16, he says, our ancestors don't even recognize us because our sin has distorted us. We have no family resemblance. Verse 17, seems to be blaming God for the failure of his generation, that God forced them to sin. What he's really saying here is, God, yes, we have wandered from your ways. Yes, we don't fear God. And he is saying, it is your loving discipline that for a time being has given us over to ourselves so we can experience what life is like without you. So what do we do when we find our hearts hardened, full of self-pity, and even wanting to blame God? What do we do? We do what Isaiah did. He says and prayed, return for the sake of your servants. Lord, don't show me your back forever. I'm yours. I may not have acted like I'm yours, but I am. Our hearts grow cold way before our feet run away from the Lord. They grow cold, unattentive. If you could see back, if you find a person who's, that just walks away from the things of God, they're not, they're not who you thought they were spiritually. You will find this long tail. If it could be exposed, it'd be great to see where back here, their heart started growing cold. They did not have a clear vision of God. They did not remember his kindness to them their heart grew cold and then their feet followed. Isaiah is saying, why did you not prevent me from going down this road? And he's saying it out of this frustration of his own heart because he knows at the end of the day it was not God that left, but it was him and them. So a prayer of remembrance, intentional remembrance, a prayer of honest Complaint. And then it starts to turn. A prayer of hope-filled confession. Hmm. I don't have to have time to read, but the verses are there on your notes. 
finally, there's a cry for help. And that's what confession is. Confession at its very simplest form is simply stop making excuses. <laughs> stop uh, sugarcoating it. Stop justifying. Confession says, I have experienced your conviction. And you are right. In very particular means, we speak our sins back to God. Yes, I did this. Yes, I did that. And that's what Isaiah does here. It speaks the truth about us, confession does. Isaiah comes to the conclusion there's little chance the people of God will change because their sin is so ingrained to them. And then verse 64.1 is the key verse in the whole prayer. He prays back to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I give up. I'm done. I've come to the end of myself. Yes, I have sinned and I turn to you and I give you this expression of utter dependence. Oh, Lord, come meet me. We need you, Lord. We need deliverance from ourselves and from our enemies. Only you can deliver us. Yeah, the questions are still there. Where are you? Still there. Why are things so hard for us, your people? Still there. Can I really change? Still there. But the difference is, <laughs> through this process, is now Isaiah and the people are looking upward. And that's where the hope is found. They're no longer looking at each other. They're no longer lurking horizontally at their circumstances. They say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. There's hope there. And then lastly, it's a prayer of surrendering trust. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Huh. Be not so terribly angry, verse 9, O Lord, and remember not the iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. There's a prayer now of surrendering trust. Isaiah wraps this prayer up with, we are the clay and you're the potter. Huh. I'm done being in control. This is a scary prayer. I'm done being my own master. I'm done being the own captain of my ship. I'm done calling the shots. I'm done being the CEO of my life. I'm done being the boss man. I need your hands to lay themselves on me and I need you to begin to shape me again and again and again because you know best what I need and I know myself. I know from experience that that is a very hard prayer. But I also know from experience that's a life-changing, very freeing prayer. <laughs> Thank God that I don't have to be in control anymore. Because when I am, 
it usually doesn't end well. Hmm. Isaiah has poured his heart out to mediate or intercede for himself and the people of Israel. Because the people of God have come back from captivity and life is difficult. And they're a mess. They had memories of how great it had once been. And what it took for things to turn was this grand vision of who God was. And then they begin to appeal to God with what I call this heart-wrenching, soul-crushing, transparent, real, raw prayer. And for me, and I think for you, when I pray like that, it's because life is painful. And my knees get sore and my cheeks get wet. <laughs> and when life gets real easy, those seasons... I find that I walk with a swagger instead of worship the one who has a swagger. So take a minute this morning to ask the question. Even as I quote E.M. Bounds, he says, prayers these outstretched arms of the child for a father's help. Take a minute to ask the question this morning. Who is God? How do I respond to him? What is my prayer life like? Have I come to that point of confessing and surrendering? Do I reflect upon God's very specific goodness to me, both in Christ and in my own life? Take a minute to apply God's word to your life this morning.